Now will you open your Bibles again to the book of Colossians as we continue to work our way through that great epistle of Paul the Apostle, Colossians. And our focus is on chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Now, last week we came really to the high point There are several high points, but the highest point of the book of Colossians, chapter 1, 15 through 20. And uh, if in God's providence you could not be here, I really urge you to go back and pick up the recording so that you can understand what Paul is doing here. It's extremely important. This is one of the highest passages in Holy Scripture about the person and work of Christ. But we will be rehearsing some of those details briefly and picking up at verse 19 through 23 this morning. However, I think it's wise that we begin reading at verse 15. Let's bow in prayer before reading. Our Father, will you please use this clay pot filled with your treasure, that this treasure may be poured over your people and into our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that we will see Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's begin reading at verse 15 of chapter 1 of Colossians. This is the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and to him, in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We pick it up here this morning. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We sinners are in need of reconciliation with God. And as we think of the biblical teaching on reconciliation, there is a Godward and there is a manward reference to reconciliation. And both that Godward and manward reference both are found in the passage that we have read together this morning. So the great question is this since we are unholy and God is holy, how did Jesus Christ make friends of us again? How did we become friends with God? How could God be friends with us when we were great, lost, blind sinners? Well, we begin, of course, with the deity of Christ once again. You notice in verse 19, so the deity of Christ is first. In verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, already this has been stressed in the passage. 
Last week, as we expounded verses 15 through 20, we saw the deity of Christ clearly proclaimed by Paul. He is the firstborn. That means he has dominion and sovereignty. It has nothing to do with having a beginning. It's the right of primogenitor, such as in the Old Testament when the firstborn was given all kinds of rights and privileges. So it is applied to Jesus here, meaning dominion and sovereignty. He is clearly pre-existent. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. The whole universe is Christocentric. The whole universe revolves around him. Jones says in his old commentary, he is the power by means of which the universe becomes an ordered and regulated whole with all its parts in the right places and with all its antagonisms reconciled. He is the keystone of the arch and without him the whole edifice would dissolve into constituent factors and perish irretrievably. And so in him who is the creator, all things hold together, all things consist. And he is the head of the church, and in all things he is preeminent. Now this can only be said of one who is God. Of whom could it be said but God that he is preeminent in all things? And so that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the deity of Christ is also stressed as he begins to relate the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ to this great work of reconciliation. And so he says in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The pleroma, the fullness, all of the divine attributes dwell in him. And the verb means to have permanent abode. It's not something temporary, it's not transitory, it's not changeable. It means to live in, it means to inhabit, it means the fullness of the divine attributes were at home in Christ. Do you see? In Him there is this plenitude, this perfection, the fullness. Jesus is, as someone has rightly said, the exhaustion of deity. And so it is a superlative statement of the deity of Jesus Christ and of the incarnation. He is the one in whom all fullness dwells, but he also is the one that came into this world to save us from our sins. So over here in chapter 2 verse 9, he says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so the Apostle Paul has in mind God incarnate. Now this is precisely what we are taught in the first chapter of John's Gospel and in many other places. But John of course tells us in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word, the eternal Word, Jesus who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the one and only of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is what Paul is teaching here in Colossians as well. Now the connection between the relationship of Christ's person and His work is very apparent. This is gospel logic and it's everywhere in the New Testament even when not explicitly stated. Jesus is God, fully God. Jesus is man, fully man. Two natures, one person. Man fell and must redeem. But where is the perfect man who can redeem? Only Jesus is that perfect man who can redeem. But when a man goes to the cross to suffer for our sins, man is finite. And so how is it possible that our sins, infinite, infinite sins, 
will be covered, will be pardoned, will be removed? And the answer to that question is that Jesus is not only fully man but fully God, two natures in perfect union in one person. And so when he goes to the cross and he sheds his blood, he does so as the God-man. And his infinite nature gives to his finite human sufferings infinite value and he is able to bear the entirety of the wrath of God that we deserve to bear forever and ever and ever. And that means that the sufferings of Christ, the redemption of Christ, the reconciliatory work of Christ is sufficient for the vilest sinner no matter who he or she may be. Which also means that there is no one here this morning that has a right to say, oh, my sins are too great. Your sins are not greater than the infinitely valuable suffering of the Son of God in our place. No one has the right to say my sins are too great. No, Christ, in Christ, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and therefore he can redeem the vilest sinner. Now is that not good news for us? And that leads us to the next point, the second thing, Christ's work of reconciliation. And we see it here in verse 20. You see, it speaks of the fullness of God dwelling in him, and then in verse 20, immediately this is connected to reconciliation. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this is his work of reconciliation, and what is that work? Well, man by his fall lost communion with God. And the scriptures also teach that when man fell, creation fell with him. Those of you tracking with the Romans exposition on Sunday nights, remember that in chapter 8, we are told that even the inanimate creation fell when Adam fell. So what is its scope? Things animate and inanimate are reconciled. Sinful man, but also the creation itself. So that in Hebrews 9.23, we are even told that heavenly things were included. Now notice he says in verse 20, all things, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Well, what does that mean, all things? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean first. It does not mean universal salvation. A lot of people who teach that everyone is going to be saved, they go to this passage and read it out of the context of everything that Paul teaches or that the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach universal salvation that everyone is going to be saved. Does not Jesus say in Matthew 25 that the impenitent will go into everlasting punishment and the saved will go into everlasting life? And it certainly cannot mean that fallen angels who are kept for the judgment of the great day, Jude 6, will be saved. And so it doesn't mean anything like that. And that's an important comment to make because there are people who are deceived by this. Let no one be deceived by the false hope that everybody's going to be saved in the end or there's some second opportunity after death. That's not true. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, the message to you is flee from the wrath to come. Hurry to the foot of the cross 
Most of you probably remember the story of the, the man who was faced with a great conflagration in a forest, and as the, the forest blazed and was moving steadily his way, that he burned an area, a large area, and then stayed there in the midst of that burned area, so that when the flames came, they moved round the scorched earth. That's the cross. The cross is scorched ground. And if your faith is in Jesus, then you stand on ground on which the wrath of God, the conflagration, the fire has already been poured out. Do you see? That's where you need to be. Uh, What then does it mean that Christ reconciles all things? Well, literally it reads, the all things. And obviously it means that the all things appointed for him to reconcile, he reconciled. A great thing indeed, all things in heaven and on earth. But what is the means of accomplishing that reconciliation? Well, it tells us in this verse, look at it. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is through the blood of Jesus. Our peace is on the basis of Christ's own shed blood. God and man are reconciled by his precious blood, and there is no other way. Reverently, I say it, God could not forgive without the shed blood of Christ. This was the Father's provision. It was the only way consistent with his own nature so that his justice could be satisfied and he could justly accept us as his sons and his daughters. It's the only way. God could say by divine fiat, let there be light and there was light. But God could not consistently with his nature simply say, I forgive. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so, the second person of the Trinity took on himself human nature and voluntarily went to the cross in order to reconcile the broken relationship between God and you and you and God. And the verb reconcile and having made peace in this passage are both aorists in the Greek text that means it happened at a definite moment. So when he shed his blood, that was the moment at which God was reconciled to us. And God laid him on him the iniquities of us all. And it pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. And 1 Peter 2.24 tells us he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And he was punished in our place and in our stead. And he was our propitiation, our wrath bearer in our place. And so it is done. It is achieved. It is accomplished. It is secure. And there is nothing that we add to it. This is God's achievement. Now, this is the Godward aspect of reconciliation of which I told you we find both the Godward and manward in the text. God is holy and the barrier must be removed. And this is what Christ did on the cross. But the apostle doesn't stop there. 
He goes on as he speaks of reconciliation, and he speaks of, and this is the third thing, our need of reconciliation, the need of our own hearts to be reconciled to God. And this is what he does beginning in verse 21. Please read it. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. From God's side, his justice must be set aside. From our side, the enmity must be removed in our sinful hearts. And so Paul says, here is what you were. This is why your hearts need the reconciliatory work of Christ. And he tells us in verse 21, it's because you were alienated. And you who once were alienated, isn't that the most, the most awful word? That we sinners, by nature, fallen in Adam, and because of our own sin, were alienated from God. Alienated. No matter the accomplishments of a person, however much he may think himself good, before trusting Christ, the person is alienated from God. Now, there may be someone here that's lost this morning, and you don't even know you're lost. You don't know that you're alienated from God. You see, it's like an insane man who thinks he's normal. And it's only when he regains his sanity that he realizes he wasn't normal after all. That's what we're all like outside of Christ. We are alienated from God and we are so alienated, dead in trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we don't even know it. We don't even recognize it. That's an amazing thing. Before the Holy Spirit regenerates us, we have no real knowledge of ourselves, who we really are, and what our need really is. He goes on in verse 21, and he says, we were hostile in our mind, or we were enemies in our mind. It could be translated. What does this mean? Well, it means that by nature, outside of Christ, despite what we may say, we were enemies, we were hostile to Christ, we were rebels, not simply passive, but actively rebellious, not only in our feelings and affections, but in our very thoughts. No matter how cleaned up civilization may make us appear, we just then become more sophisticated in our sin. So he uses the word dianoia, the mind, dia with the preposition meaning through, So this is not simply an effect on the mind somewhat. You could translate it all through the mind. All through the mind. So Kant, Hegel, Dewey, these are just more sophisticated approaches of rebellion all through the mind. And it's true of each one of us by nature. And again, he goes on to say, doing evil deeds. Look at it again. And verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now wait, you said, I've not murdered anybody. Well, did you murder in your heart? Did you rebel against your parents? Well, I've not committed adultery. Well, did you lust in your heart? Have you never gossiped? I gave a lot of money to help the poor. Well, did you do it to the glory of God? Sometimes our evil deeds, you see, are splendid sins. They're the sins that everybody looks at and thinks, my, he's a good person. 
Splendid sins that everyone thinks to be wonderful rather than vile, but it still comes from the same mind that is hostile to God and alienated from Him. The same lost, undone heart. Did you notice, by the way, that Paul speaks of mind in verse 21? And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, he didn't say in your minds, but you were hostile in mind. I find that to be interesting. Do you suppose in making the singular the mind, Paul is just saying that through the manifestations of sin, which vary, one mind of humanity outside of Christ is being manifested? One mind that is hostile to God, one universal hiss against the God of heaven from the mind and heart of each one of us, but even though it's one mind, it manifests itself in a variety of ways, in a variety of circumstances, through a variety of personalities. Similarly and more extensively, keep your finger here, turn to the third chapter of Romans. Let me remind you of what Paul says about what we were like and who we are, were, outside of Christ. In Romans 3, 9 and following, and there are many passages like this, but we'll focus on this one. Paul says... Verse 9, Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? That is to say, better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that is Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. By nature, nobody is a God seeker. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I remind you ladies that were at the, at the WIC tea, the women in the church tea, as I was privileged to unpack the life of Robert Haldane and the great revival that came to Europe through his ministry in Geneva to those lost, undone theological students. They were all lost. Most of them were in theology school and had never even read the Bible. They were lost. And there's a man who became really a great, great leader in the church later, Merle Dobinia, who was lost reading the book of Romans with Robert Haldane, and they read this third chapter of the book of Romans. And Haldane was speaking of the total depravity of man. And Merle Dobinia said, now I see that doctrine in the Bible. But Robert Haldane looked at him and said, yes, but do you see it in your heart? Now I wonder how many here, you know that the Bible teaches this about the human heart, but do you see it to be true 
of your own heart? Do you see your own need of a Savior, Christ the Lord? Don't you think that this makes reconciliation a wonder indeed? When we consider what our minds and hearts and souls are like outside of Christ, and that we can contribute nothing to it, I think it makes it a wonder. I really do. I hope you do. But then we move on. Fourthly, the accomplishment and the result of reconciliation. The accomplishment and the result of reconciliation in verse 22. Let's read 21 and 22 together. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We'll stop there at the moment. Now notice how Paul puts it here in verse 22. Does it strike you? In his body of flesh by his death. Why didn't he just say? He shed his blood. He's already said that. Why didn't he say? He died. He's already indicated that. Christ shed blood has been stressed, but now look carefully at Paul's wording, how striking it is. He stresses body, flesh, and death. And I think the reason that he does that is that apparently the heretics against whom he's writing there that want to tempt away the Colossian church from the truth not only denied the deity of Christ but also denied his humanity. Not only denied his deity but denied the incarnation of our Lord. And apart from the incarnation of our Lord we could not be saved. Because he could not obey the law that we broke and he could never have gone to the cross and save us from our sins. So Paul stresses the bodily, physical death, the real shed blood of Jesus. Otherwise, he could not really bear our condemnation in our place. And we could not sing, in our place condemned he stood, sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We couldn't sing it if he did not die in real flesh, in a real body, and shed real blood. Precious blood. You know, there developed a heresy later in the church called Docetism, Serinthianism, which denied that Christ died in a real body, a phantom body perhaps, or the story is told of John the Apostle who went into the baths and Serinthus was there who denied the incarnation of our Lord. And as John the Apostle came in, he said, let us fly lest even the bath fall on us because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. (laughs) Well, in his body Christ bore the wrath of God and was deserted by the Father for our sakes. And John couldn't tolerate any other doctrine, nor could Paul, and nor should we. Without it we're lost. But what is the end in view? He's accomplished it really in in his real body. What's the end in view? Well, Again, verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So that's the end. The ultimate goal is to present you holy. W.R. Nicholson puts it this way, 
The sinner for whom Christ died is invested to the eye of God with all the sacredness and value of his substitutionary sufferings and with all the righteousness of which those sufferings were the expression. So that you might be without blemish judicially in the court of God now and on the great day. And so that you might be, the ESV says, above reproach. And that's good, but the word really means without accusation. It means without any charge. It means unaccused. Someone has actually translated it so that you may be uncharged. Wouldn't it be good news if you were brought into a court accused of great crime and the judge said you are uncharged? Well, that's what Paul has in mind. It's a legal term. So we who have been reconciled by Christ's blood will never, never, never be arraigned before the condemnatory justice of God. Never. Now, is Paul referencing the present or the future here? I think the answer is yes. That is, Paul is indistinct because it is both present and future, especially if all the references are judicial. The conditional clause in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, might indicate that Paul has mainly the future in mind because of the justification that is now ours by the imputed righteousness of Christ We can gather here on a Sunday and sing, Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear and guilt and shame. We can stand boldly on that great day, but the great news is you already are accepted if you're a believer in Jesus now. On that great day all the world, all the universe will see it but you're already accepted because of the work of Jesus Christ. But there's one other thing here, and we will call it, fifthly, the evidence of reconciliation. The evidence of reconciliation is found in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, am a minister... Now Paul is no Arminian saying that the work of Christ depends upon our supplementing it by, his, by our works. He doesn't mean that. Paul is not saying, by reason of your faithfulness you will be saved. He is not saying that one can lose the uncharged position that Christ has bought for him. But when he says, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard... The Apostle Paul is saying there is only one foundation on which to build your lives, and that is the hope of the gospel. He is saying precisely what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, that if you build on the rock, then when the winds and the storms and the rains come, you're on safe ground. But if you're actually building on sand, when the storms come, you'll be blown away. He is saying that. And Paul is writing, expecting that those to whom he writes have fully trusted in Christ and will faithfully adhere to the gospel. There's a Greek issue here. There's a particle introducing a conditional clause that may be translated assuming that. 
So I think you could read here, assuming that you continue in the faith stable and steadfast. Paul is not expressing doubt, but rather confidence. One who is truly grounded in Christ will not move away from the hope of the gospel, but there may be those in Colossae that are not truly basing their lives on the gospel. And the warning then comes through. And surely Paul means to contrast true faith with the false teachers because the false teachers are not grounded on the truth. They've denied the deity of Christ. They've denied his humanity, his incarnation. They have denied the atonement. So he is saying, be sure of your foundation. Be sure of your foundation. The sinless Son of God who took away the sins of sinners. Be sure the superstructure of your life is built on the gospel of sovereign free grace and not on your own supposed merits or works because you don't have any. This is stable. This is firm. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other. So says Paul, keep your focus on the gospel which has been proclaimed to you, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And again, as someone has observed, Paul is not after statistical exactness, but to proclaim the universality of the gospel as opposed to the narrow exclusiveness of the Gnostic heretics in the church at Colossae. Now let me attempt by the grace of God to bring, if the Spirit of God will make it powerful to our hearts, three powerful closing quick remarks. First, if God has reconciled us to Himself by the blood of the cross, then we should live with reconciled hearts one with another. And it is a denial of the gospel when Christians say, we can't reconcile. It's a denial of the implications of what Christ did for us. When we do not have hearts willing to reconcile with brothers and sisters, when we have been hurt, then we're denying the gospel. If a holy God can remove the barrier, satisfy His justice by sending His own Son to die for me, and then open my heart and show me my need, granting me saving faith and repentance so that we can be friends again, then surely you can be reconciled to a true brother or true sister who perhaps has offended you. Second, there's only one sure foundation. Let me stress it again. And upon this foundation, reconciliation through Christ's blood, you can and are secure. Any other foundation is sinking sand. The only sure foundation is Christ. The only sure foundation is His finished work on the cross, His shed blood, His merit. The ground of assurance is found here and only here. Your conscience will be continually vexed until your heart is focused here. Only by trusting the Lord who bore our curse and humiliation shall we be saved and have assurance of it. And so with all my might, if the Spirit of God will bless it, more importantly with His might, I call upon the lost among us today to forsake sin and self and to trust in the only Savior of sinners who is Jesus Christ, 
God who assumed human nature and who went to a cross and who really in his body shed his blood for sinners like you and like me. Come to him. Trust in him. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, look, it's as if I'm an ambassador. And and as an ambassador, when an ambassador speaks, the king speaks. And so the king is saying to you, be reconciled to God. On the basis of the Godward reconciliation, now may he change your heart so that even within your hearts, you may now be reconciled to God. Is there someone here that does not know Christ? Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come, lay down the weapons of your warfare. Come, be friends with God through Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, I think this is important for us in the church to remember. Let us remember that false doctrine against which Paul writes. I mean, these are serious things. The deity of Christ, humanity of Christ, the atoning work. The false doctrine against which Paul writes. Let's keep it before, before us as we move through Colossians. And children, as you grow up, and as you one of these days will have a responsibility to help see that sound ministers are in this pulpit. Don't forget, there's false teaching, there's false doctrine. And beware of veering in the least toward that which denies the gospel. I'll say it again, beware of veering in the least in doctrine or in life from that which denies the gospel. I have a quote from my friend Mr. Spurgeon. He said this, it's in his autobiography, I might not have had such an intense loathing of the new theology, which denies all the things the Gnostics deny, or tries to reinterpret them for the church. Ah, that's why it's so subtle. Oh yeah, we believe in the resurrection of Christ. They don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. They don't believe he rose from the dead. They believe he rises in our hearts. But he's still in a grave somewhere. You see, it's subtle, isn't it? They use the same language. So Spurgeon says, I might not have had such an intense loathing of the new theology if I had not seen so much of its evil effects. I could tell you of a preacher of unbelief whom I have seen in my own vestry, utterly broken down, driven almost to despair, and having no rest for the sole of his foot until he came back to simple trust in the atoning sacrifice. If he were speaking to you, he would say, Cling to your faith, brethren. If you once throw away your shield, you will lay yourself open to imminent dangers and countless wounds, for nothing can protect you but the shield of faith. And so, after Spurgeon, I say, Cling to your faith, brethren. Cling to your faith, brothers and sisters. Cling to faith in Christ, children. Cling to your faith. If you do not cling to this faith, then you've never grounded yourself really on it. Ground yourself on it. Know Christ. Trust Christ. Cling to it. Cling to your faith, brethren. God's people said, Amen.